Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory and I talk about the Kingdom of God because we're told to go and preach the Kingdom of God is at hand. But what does that look like? What is that that thing that they call the Kingdom of God? And I've, I've said this many times is that the Kingdom of God is the right to be ruled by God. And you can lose that right to be ruled by God because you can give somebody else the right to rule over you. And we see this throughout the Bible as a major conflict between what man should be doing and what man often finds himself doing. He makes covenants with other gods. He makes agreements. He makes uh, contracts with other gods where he has to keep his word. He cannot bear false witness. He must keep his word. So if you make agreements to do something, you have to fulfill that agreement. This is in the nature of God. It's in the nature of the law of God, the law of nature. That if you agree to do something, if you go into debt, for instance, you need to pay that debt. And, of course, we went into a debt when we committed sin and had to be paid. And people say, well, Christ paid that debt, so I don't have to do anything. Well, you have to be a follower of Christ. I mean, Christ even said that if you don't forgive, neither will you be forgiven. He's telling you the conditions. There are some conditions to the salvation of Christ. He said so. I mean, I'm not making it up. He said so. If you love me, keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments if you love me. He makes this clear throughout the gospel that what you do does make a difference. You, you're not going to save yourself. You will be saved by grace, but what you do makes a difference. It's, for one thing, what you do is evidence of whether you really believe in Christ or not. There's a lot of people who say they believe in Christ, and Christ talks about people who say they come in his name, but he says he knows them not, and they don't know him. I mean, the Pharisees thought they knew Moses. They thought they knew God. And Jesus says, if you knew the Father, you would know me, but you don't know the Father. And the fact is, many Christians today don't know the Father, and they don't know Christ, and they don't really believe in Christ, but they think they do. And they claim they do. And why do I point that out? Because do I want to put them down? No, I want them to realize you missed it. You missed the mark. Missing the mark and sin are synonymous terms. And as long as you remain in sin, and Christ points this out, that you're not saved. You can't remain in sin. Now, I'm not saying you won't make mistakes after you've turned around and headed back. That you won't stumble along the way. But your policy will be a policy of righteousness. What you do daily will be seeking righteousness. 
you know, Peter sinned. Peter rejected Christ. He denied Christ. But he repented because his direction was the same. He stumbled. But his direction was the same. Many Christians today, their direction is not the same as what Christ said to do. Their direction in their life, their policies in their life are absolutely contrary to Christ. They are literally working for the Antichrist. They are Antichrist. They are doing contrary. And one of those things is that they have God's many. And they pray to those gods. And they apply to those gods. And they uh, worship those gods. But they go to church. And they sing songs. And they say they love Jesus. But in reality, in reality, they are workers of iniquity. But that that's good to know because... Now they can become aware and repent and actually be saved instead of simply imagine that they are saved. In 1 Corinthians 8, 5, we see, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, What is Paul talking about in Corinthians? This word gods. It's the same word that we see in other places translated capital G-O-D, God. But sometimes the translators make it small G-O-D-S, gods. And they do that when they think that the authors were referring to these gods many. But who are these gods many? And that that word God is just another one of those words that we keep using, but we don't always understand what it means. We didn't. We don't understand what Paul means when he uses it. I mean, Jesus said, "Is it not written that ye are gods?" Talking to the apostles, what is he talking about? They aren't gods. They aren't God. There's only one God. But he is talking about something, and we need to understand that word in order to understand what he's saying. But really what we do need to do is understand Christ in order to understand what he's saying. And then what will happen is that when we hear some of these words, we'll realize, well, that word must have another meaning, a different meaning. And the Greek, it's the same word, but it's translated differently in different places. Sometimes God, sometimes God's, sometimes judges. That's right. Sometimes the word that you see translated God in the Bible is also translated judges. And we're going to look at a, what what used to be fairly common knowledge at one time amongst theologians at least. And today, ministers are absolutely ignorant of it. And they don't understand the ramifications of it because of all the other words that they don't understand the meaning of. In uh, Genesis uh, 50, verse 19, And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in place of God? 
Now, this idea, am I in place of God? There is a God, a creator. You know, the the law of nature and nature's God. God created nature. God created the universe. And he created the law that, by which the universe operates. And that is what we call God. But he talks about being in place of God. Am I in place of God? Fear not. But the reality is, some men do assert the place of God in our lives. And sometimes we don't know that because we call them something else. But they are actually doing what God should be doing in our life. You know, when we pray, it says, give us this day our daily bread. Well, sometimes men give you your daily bread. And how they get it, to give it to you, is the nature of the provider that they are. You know, I I have an article, The Mighty Provider. In the Bible, we see a reference to Nimrod as a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the word before there is also translated instead of. And the word hunter is most often translated provisions or provider. What Nimrod was, was a mighty provider instead of the Lord. In place of God, they prayed to Nimrod for their daily bread. Now, does anybody else see that? Do we see that kind of idea anywhere else in the system of things around us today? Is there anybody that you might pray to for your daily bread? No. No. Of course not. But yes, in truth there is. There are people that you pray to for your daily bread. And you call that your welfare office or your social security office. And these systems are in place of God. Now, it's it's a reality that Moses and Jesus and the early church provided services like daily bread, daily ministration that we see in Acts. In Acts 6, where they had to take care of the daily bread for the widows and orphans. And we talk about the Eucharist, which was bread. And, of course, uh, I pointed out many times the Eucharist originally was sacks of bread. Loaves of bread. And grain. That was Eucharist, because Eucharist means thanksgiving. And what it means is that the people were giving and providing the daily bread for those that didn't have enough, those that had shared with those that didn't have enough, which is what we see them saying in their early church meetings. They were providing daily bread out of the goodness of their heart, out of God moving in them with love and patience for each other in charity. In righteousness. Now there were other groups around that they would go and pray to Caesar for free bread. Daily bread. 
And in praying for that benefit from Caesar, Caesar would provide it. He provided huge volumes. Sixteen acres of granaries were tons, hundreds and hundreds of tons of grain were coming into Rome on a regular basis to provide free bread for the people of Rome. Subsidized the cost, sometimes free entirely. Uh, They also gave away other things, cheese and wine and even meat at times when there was a sacrifice to the needy of their society. And the needy prayed to Caesar for these benefits, applied to Caesar. And they got, sometimes they got a little metal coin that was kind of a token that they would show, to show that they were eligible for the free bread. And this was a welfare system called Corbin in Rome. Q-O-R-B-A-N. But Corbin, like the Corbin of Herod, And this made those men who could decide what bread you get and how much bread you get and who gets and who doesn't get it. These were the gods. They were going to decide. And of course, here Joseph says, fear not, am I in place of God? Because Joseph was going to provide free bread. He was going to give them food. Of course, they talk in Genesis about purchasing the grain. You know, we see that, and originally they came with gold and silver to purchase the grain. But then they talk about eventually the money ran out. And then they traded their livestock. Well, what's the Pharaoh going to do with hundreds of thousands of sheep and cattle? And Well, he's going to let you keep them to take care of them, but he owns them. I had a friend who uh, would run short of money from time to time, and he he had a couple of rifles that were really nice rifles. I think it was a Ruger stainless steel, and and he ran out of money. And so he went down to a pawn shop, and he sold it to get, a, you know, uh, back then I think he got like 150 bucks for what was a $600 gun. And I said, don't do that. If you're short of money, come over to my place. I'll I'll loan you some money. Don't go be selling a good gun like that and taking a loss. And I said, that just doesn't make any sense. Don't go to a pawn shop. So the next time he ran a little short of money, he came over and he wanted to sell me, I think it was a forty-five pistol. Because he didn't want to take the charity. So he was going to use me like a pawn shop. And I said, okay, well, how much is it worth? And he said, how much? And I says, well, okay, here's the money. And he gave me the pistol. And I says, well, I don't really have a place to keep it. You keep it for me. <laughs> so, and I says, if somebody's breaking into my house to steal your gun, I'd rather have you have your gun to come over and protect me. <laughs> so, so anyway, he he kept my gun for me. Until he could pay me back the whatever it was, two hundred bucks, and and eventually he paid it back, and then his gun was his gun. But in the case of Israel, when they ran short of food, and all the people of Egypt ran short of food, they sold their sheep 
But they kept the legal title to their sheep. Because they had to take care of their sheep. You know, that's who, you know, was going to be taking care of all the livestock is all the people. But the livestock didn't belong to them anymore. The beneficial interest in the livestock didn't belong to them. It belonged to the government. And their own labor they sold themselves. It says they sold themselves. So that 20% of the labor that they did every year had to go to the government. Had to go to Pharaoh. And so, because they were, they now belonged, a portion of their labor now belonged to Pharaoh, but Joseph put a ceiling on them and it could never be more than 20%. Other countries have done the same thing. Hard times, depressions, what have you. People said, well, they prayed to the government to give them benefits. To, to provide food. You know, keep busy employment. Welfare. And the government agreed to do it, but they said, they said we will do it, but you have to pay us a portion of your labor every year. In other words, you have to waive a right to a portion of your labor every year. And they, this, Joseph didn't make this deal, so he didn't put a ceiling limit on it, so they can, they can ask 20% or 25 or 30 or 35 or 50. And in different places, you know, different countries have, you know, 75% income tax. And the labor of the people doesn't belong to the people anymore. They don't have a right to their own labor. They're not free people. They're back in bondage. Again, they're back in the bondage of Egypt. I actually had a couple of emails last night. People can, uh, we have forms and people read the different articles and they're always writing me <laughs> and asking me questions, uh, based on their, uh, understanding of the Bible. And see, I had two questions from a celestial somebody or other. I won't give the whole email. I won't give their name. But they uh, wrote a question and asked, subject to the powers over us, that means the government you live under. In the USA, we have a godly rights, inalienable rights, under other governments you have the rights that governments give you. And I believe he meant to write no more here. And uh, that may have been a woman who wrote that. Uh, I was just looking at the name. I didn't see the name before. I see it in the in the lining. But anyway, I pointed out that it says, most of what people think are rights today are counted in law as privileges. Your right to travel. Your right to drive. That's a privilege. Now, that's not a right. And that's very clear in their laws. Now, you can say you have a right to travel, but the reality is it's a privilege for most U.S. citizens. If you want to leave the country and go to another country, you have to get a passport. You have to have government ID. You don't have... you. Everything you're doing now is by privilege. Why? Because you've sold yourself in exchange for benefits, just like when they went into the bondage in Egypt. 
You don't own your sheep. If you have sheep, you don't own them. You don't own your cows. You don't own your horses. You don't own your car. You don't own your house. You have legal title, and legal title, by definition, does not include the beneficial interest. You don't have lawful title. You have an apparent title, a a title that appears that you own it. And they charge you for the use of your house, of the use of your car. And they call that charge a use tax. And it's a property tax. It's a, you know, you get your little sticker for your car. That's a use tax because you can't use it without permission. That's not operating by right. That's operating by privilege. You see? So you you don't... This person is under a strong delusion that they have rights as citizens of the United States. They have civil rights that are really privileges by granted by the United States. And we have dozens of articles and show you that this is the way it works. And that's fine. Because the slothful should be under tribute. Tribute is charging you for the use of something. Income tax is use on, of your labor. You wanted to do something, work for somebody. You have to pay for the right to, to the use of your labor because you've waived a right to your labor. But that's, that's fine because now you don't have to take care of yourself. If you get in an accident and you don't have the money to pay for it, the government will pay for it. If you, if you get paralyzed, They'll put you on disability, and they'll pay for all your groceries. That's great, isn't it? But let's not delude ourselves into thinking that we're not in bondage. Of course you're in bondage. If they are bound to guarantee you entitlements, you are bound to serve them. And they get to rule over how much you're going to give. Like I said, they could say 20%, they could say 25%, and they could say 30%. They could say 75% of all your labor has to go to them. You see, if if you were working at McDonald's and you flipped 100 burgers over, 25 of those burgers that you flipped over, the value of that flipping over is not paid to you. It's paid to the pharaoh to the federal government because you're in bondage. Now you can you can imagine that you're free. You can say, I can quit this job anytime I want. I'm not a slave. But then you go to try to get a job somewhere else, another federal taskmaster, another individual with a federal employer identification number will give you or not give you a job. If you can't get a job from any of those, the government will pay you. It's called unemployment insurance, which is based on the old slave laws of Rome. If you owned slaves, you had to pay a tax. There's a 5% tax on owning slaves. Because you might, you might fire the slave and, and dump them out on the street when you didn't have any use for them anymore. And the government would have to take care of them. So they charged a 5% tax on owning slaves. You see? I mean, it's the same laws. So you're, you're not free. You're back in bondage. And you have many gods who will rule over your life. 
And the kingdom of God is where you don't have them ruling over your life. And you can't just jump in there. We're going to talk more about this when we get back. How do you find the kingdom of God? How do you find that place where you could be ruled by God and do what God says instead of what all these other lesser gods say? You see? And we'll we'll talk about that when we come back. And some of these other words that you have misunderstood over a period of time. Be right back. So welcome back. We're talking about uh, gods and God's many and rulers many and we've talked about this many times before we have other audios and even videos up on the subject if you read in Exodus 21 it says if the servant shall plainly say I love my master and choose to serve him then his master will bring him unto the judges but that word judges there is the word that they translate into God Because the word God in the Old Testament that we see, Elohim, means a ruler or a judge. Now, we're not to make covenants with other gods, but there were other gods, other ruling judges, but they were not rulers over us. They were rulers over things, like at the temple, when you gave a sacrifice to a Levite. He was a ruler over that thing now. And this is why, you know, in um, in the writings of David, he, he makes reference to the fact that we are gods, actually. And we'll get to that eventually, and I'll show you where that is. In Samuel 2.25, 1 Samuel 2.25, we see if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. The word judge there is, the first judge, is the word God. And how does God judge other men? Well, you, if in a jury trial, in a true jury trial, you don't see real jury trials because the juries today don't decide fact and law. They used to. But because you've changed your relationship with the government, now the government is the one who decides the law, and you only get to decide the facts. And the one who decides the law is the God, is the ruling judge of that courtroom. Now, there are other references that we see in the biblical text where, like I said, if one man sin against another, the judges shall judge. The God shall judge. So how how does that come about? Well, you have a dispute between two people. And they cannot settle it between themselves. One says, you know, well, you know, you, you cheated me, and no, I didn't cheat you, and they go back and forth, and they, they cannot settle the dispute. But they say they both trust Harry. They trust him. They think that he will decide fairly. And so they go to Harry, and they say, Harry, whatever you decide in this matter, we will we will abide by your decision. Well, now Harry is God over that one decision. He's the ruling judge 
over that one decision. Because they agreed that they will abide by the decision of Harry. So now Harry is the judge. They agree. Harry is the ruling judge of this one dispute only. And this is how the courts of Israel operated. And this is what a jury trial used to be all about. You get together with your opponent. You say, I have a dispute against this guy. And he says, well, it's it's unfounded. and But I do have a dispute. And he makes testimony to it. And the people say, okay, we'll trial, try this. Uh, you guys pick the guys who will decide fact and law. That's the jury. And so all the citizens show up and he says, I'll accept this guy as a jury. You know, Harry. And the other guy says, okay, I can accept Harry. And then they say, well, how about David over here? And he says, well, I don't want David. So he says, okay, well, how about Steve? And he says, okay, I'll accept Steve. And they keep doing this until they get 12 guys who are going to decide fact and law in this case. And that's called Vordire. Is picking that jury that you both agree on. And whatever that jury says is you will abide by because you are agreeing on this matter only that they are the ruling judge of this dispute. That's how the courts of Israel work. Now, originally, you know, you would go to your elders in a congregation of ten and there would be a minister and he would have a minister and there's twelve people and they would decide this. But you've already decided that you trusted these ministers. But what happened if you have a dispute with another person in another congregation? Well, then then you go to the pool of elders and you agree on 12 guys who will sit and decide this matter. You can't have all the elders. That would be 24 guys. So you pick, I'll accept him, I reject him, and then you get 12. And those 12 sit and rule over this particular dispute. They are the gods of that dispute only. They're rulers over the things that matter in this dispute. They're not going to tell you what you can do and not do tomorrow, but in this dispute, they're going to say, you got to give him his cow back. Or you got to do whatever. You know, whatever is the dispute. And this is how law worked. And this was okay in Israel. Of course, it was... Christ was preaching, you know, forgive and, you know, make peace with each other and and all that sort of thing. But it doesn't always work out because some of you are stiff-necked. Some of you are more stiff-necked than the Israelites. In Joshua, we see uh, Joshua gives a choice in chapter 24, verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day. Whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were in the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we would forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And of course, These gods are the ones who get to decide good and evil for you. They are the rulers over you. Now, in a court case in Israel, 
He could only decide over the particular issue that was brought before them. But what's happened now is you've made so many covenants with the people round about you, they now decide how much money you're going to take home from work and how much money you're going to give to them. They decide. Not like Levites who would receive a portion according to their service. And that portion would be based on a ten because there were ten families in a congregation. But you decided who your Levite would be. You said, I don't like this guy. I don't want him. I'm not going to pay him anything. I don't think he's doing a good job. You got to make that decision. Once you went under an authority, they make the decision. Because they don't only have authority over the thing. They have authority over the person. You see, and that's what makes you in bondage. If you read in Exodus 22:28, it says, tells us, Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the rulers of thy people. The ruling judges of thy people. You know, and this was common knowledge, you know, a hundred years ago. And I'll, I'll, I'll eventually quote you from several books that shows you that this word God had to do with ruling judges and even could include kings and princes and presidents and what have you. And once you understand that, then it it a whole new light could open up to you and realize what it means to make no covenants with them nor with their gods. Nor bow down and serve them. Don't give them your labor in exchange for free bread or a pot of porridge. Because God hates that when you do that. That's the error of Balaam. That's the error of Nicolaitans. That's the error of Esau. Because you sell your rights, your birthrights, in exchange for privileges and free bread. You see, that's how it works. That's the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loose in heaven. When you when you agree to the application, you are binding yourself and your children even. And this is why I wrote the book Covenants of the Gods. Because there are so many ways in which you could do this. You have that book and you can just go through chapter by chapter. You know, Oh, I could do it this way. And I could do it this way. I could do it with the money. And I could do it with... with uh, the church is incorporating. I can do it with uh, uh, permissions and licenses and application for benefits and the unrighteous mammon. All these ways can bring you into bondage where you don't have rights. Now, you can go to school and they can say, you're endowed by your creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And you, you walk out of the room thinking, I have these rights. But the reality is, if you learn that in public school, you don't have those rights. <laughs> because public school is one of those free bread benefits. They're providing you with public education because they took away from your neighbors. They took something from your neighbors because they had the power to take from their, your neighbors. Because your neighbors wanted public school education and they wanted benefits and they wanted all these free gifts. Gratuities and benefits of the government. 
And this brings you into bondage. And that's where you're at. You're not free. Holy smokes. You think you're free? You're not free. You're in bondage. Worse than it was in Egypt. You're just under a strong delusion that you're free. You're not free. Who are you kidding? Well, besides yourself. You're not free. Write that down. Okay. (laughs) You know, but this is the freest country in the world. No, it isn't. As a matter of fact, it's one of the most restrictive countries in the world. Yeah, you don't get justice in most of your courts anymore. It's just unbelievable what goes on in the courts. Most of you haven't spent much time in courts. But I've seen the people get run over in the courts today. My father was an attorney. When I was a small boy, we would see it. My father quit the law three times because he was so disgusted with the good old boy corruption that was going on behind the scenes that most of you don't see and your newspaper Fox News doesn't report well, occasionally some of it gets in the news but you have no idea of the injustices going on but that's okay you got TV you can watch TV and that'll make you feel good you know and if you hear anybody screaming outside and needs help just turn the TV up a little bit more and you won't hear it anymore and then they don't need help if you don't hear it right you know, if the tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it, did it make any noise? No, of course not. Of course, I'm being sarcastic here. Um, this New Testament word God or gods is translated from the Greek word theos. And that's really the same thing. It, it, that word was figuratively used for magistrates in courts. You know, and I, I point out, we have a whole article, uh, God's Many, you can find it on our website, org, And we go through a lot of these verses and show you that uh, these God's Many were just the judges. And they were appointed by the emperor, uh, the federal judges, or what they call imperial judges in those days, were appointed by the emperor. That appointment by the emperor, the power to do that, was called apotheos, apotheos, of Caesar. Augustus was the first one who really had that power. And he actually requested it when the Senate elected him as imperator, which means commander-in-chief, because he was the commander-in-chief of the army and the navy. There was no air force then, so he wasn't commander-in-chief of the air force. It would be much, much later before governments had the power to make fire come down from the heavens in the sight of men. <laughs> That's uh, That was attributed to the image of the beast. The beast didn't have that power. But the image of the beast, the similitude of the beast that was to come much later, it would have the power to make fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. And of course today, uh, governments have air forces. They don't just have navies and armies. They have air forces. And air forces can make fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. So that's, that doesn't prove anything, but that's kind of an interesting coincidence because that was the distinction between the beast and the image of the beast is that the image of the beast had that power. And if Rome was the beast and the emperor was the commander-in-chief of Rome... And he was the commander-in-chief of the army and the navy. 
you can see the parallels yourself. You can, you can put your own pieces together as to who is the image of the beast. And you have to realize that we're dealing in principles and precepts here. You know, all all these things that we have, all these systems that are created by men, they will fail. They will collapse in their own time. We don't need to attack them. And they should be there because, you know, when they put these heavy burdens on the people uh, and the people, you know, cry out, the people should suffer, you see, because they've been slothful in the ways of God. Now, what are the ways of God? Because, see, if you return to the ways of God, then God will return to you. But as long as you continue to reject the ways of God and keep whoring after these other ways of the fathers of the earth, then God's going to reject you too because the fathers of the earth are not forgiving. They will hold you to your debt. They will burden you more and more and more and more because they're greedy for gain. And, of course, that's what should happen to you because you were greedy for gain. You wanted free education at the expense of your neighbor and you thought that was okay. It was okay to covet your neighbor's goods. You see how many commandments by policy you're breaking and violating on a daily basis and don't even realize it. You don't you don't even realize that, that these are what you would call sin if you were going to classify these actions. You know, coveting your neighbor's goods, that was a sin. Making covenants with other gods, many around you, in order to obtain benefits from them, is a sin. And modern Christians sin as a matter of policy, and they don't even know it's sin because they're... Ministers are brutes and liars in wolves and sheep's clothing. They they want your tithe, but they won't tell you the hard messages of Christ. They won't show you the path of Christ, which the path of Christ, what were the early Christians doing that modern Christians don't do? Well, early Christian church was the entire social welfare of Christians. They didn't go to Caesar and pray for his free bread. Or his benefits, or his free wine, or cheese, or whatever it was this week. They didn't. They didn't go pray for that. They took care of one another. Those that had shared with those that didn't have. That was common in the church. That was actually common in the church a hundred years ago in America. It was common in the church. That's where you went for your social welfare. If you were a member of a church and you, you lost your job and you were starving, you could go to church and they would feed you. They would make sure your kids didn't go hungry. They would take care of the widows and the orphans so that, you know, if you were sick or you died, they would make sure your family didn't starve. That's what the church used to do. It doesn't do that anymore because it's turned faith into an idea. Faith is not actually doing the will of the Father. It's just thinking you do the will of the Father. It's thinking you love God. It's not actually loving him. It's not actually serving him by serving one another, like he said. You see, you've completely lost it. You've completely gone away from Christ and what he was saying, what the early church was doing. You're not doing any of those things. You just imagine that you believe in Jesus. You don't think you have to do... I had a pastor tell me, 
you know, I, I point out that Jesus said, if you, what must I do to obtain eternal life? He was asked this in the Gospels, and he said, keep the commandments. And he says, yeah, but that was before Christ died. Now that Christ died, we don't have to keep the commandments anymore. What? Where do you get that? And another guy telling me, once you get your salvation, once you, because you have accepted Jesus in your head, you say, I accept the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Now you're saved. They actually put a date on this. You know, I was at April 15th in 1942. I was saved because I accepted Jesus. Now they say, you cannot lose that salvation. You can go napalm villages in Vietnam and you can murder people by the thousands and you can do all these things. But you're, you will not lose your salvation because you accepted Jesus. How do you get to the point of such rationalization? Do you ever imagine that when you say you accepted Jesus back on such and such a date, that maybe you didn't really accept Jesus? You just said it? And what does Jesus say about those who say, Lord, Lord, and they're just saying it? He says, those who say, Lord, Lord, but do not do the will of my Father, they don't have any part of me. You see, so just you saying it don't make it so. That should be just a no-brainer. So what does make it so? Well, you have to gather together and actually start loving one another and taking care of one another. And that's why we created the, the Living Network, which you can get on by going to the livingnetwork.org. It'll take you to another page. But uh, that page will have all kinds of groups based all over the United States and Canada and Australia. And you can join one of those groups. And then you can start to get to know the people that are on those groups. Most of them will be very quiet and not say anything. But some of them have had the courage to become contact ministers. And they actually see who's on the group. And they accumulate information about who's on the group and where they live, about where they live. And, you know, how to get a hold of them. And they can help put you in contact with other people that are wanting to repent and turn around and go the other way. Now, some of these people use, you know, lunar calendars, and some of them use solar calendars, and some of them don't even use calendars, and some of them come from, you know, Catholic background, and Seventh-day Adventist background, and Mormon background, and Jehovah Witnesses, and and some may have been yogis at one time, or Muslims, or what have you. But the one thing that they should have in common, may not, is that they want to repent and turn around and seek the kingdom of God. They want to serve God. They want to worship God, the Father, who art in heaven, and pray to Him for their daily bread, and hope that their neighbor will love them as much as they are loving their neighbor. In other words, they'll start taking care of one another. This is what they should be doing. Now, everybody who comes to the network will probably not be doing that, But that's how you work out your salvation with fear and trembling is that you get together and try to figure out who's who. And you gather together. And almost everybody you gather with are going to have all kinds of baggage and sin in their hearts and everything. But they may have a glimmer of desire to go back and serve their father. And to to return to the ways of righteousness. That's why Christ didn't say jump into the kingdom. He said seek it. Seek the kingdom. 
Because it's a process. Seek the righteousness of God in the things that you do. I can guarantee you won't be righteous all the time. But then every time you catch yourself being unrighteous, repent, turn around, try to do it right the next time. I mean, you see that process with guys like Peter. He was screwing up all the time. But he kept at it. He persevered. And you need to do the same. So the process begins with seeking to come together with others for the purposes of Christ, which was to love one another as you love yourself, and to love God, and to love the ways of God. And this this is going to be a process in learning how to do that, how to get back to that ways of God. Because we've really gone a long ways away from it. I mean, it's just shocking how far away from the ways of God we have really gotten. And where we would go to get back to that. What we would do to get back to that. How we would do things to get back to that. We we just have, simply have to turn around and start doing things differently. Quite a bit differently. I came across, I told you I came across a number of different quotes. And we'll talk about that in the next show. Where it was well known, you know, a hundred years ago, or maybe a little bit more, that that these gods many were simply judges and rulers in courts and governments. And so, come to the next show and uh, listen in and find out what everybody used to know in the past. Till then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And we were talking in the last show about gods and God's many and how these God's many are the right ones who have the right to rule over you. They have the right to decide what is fact and law, what is good and evil. We talked just recently on the network about calendars. 
And some of the people that gather are using solar calendars, and some of the people that gather are using lunar calendars and lunar solar calendars, and some of the people that are gathered uh, still use Sunday as their Sabbath, although some will use the Sabbath as their Sabbath, uh, which is the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. But they're still using the solar calendar. And there's this controversy. And the fact is, this controversy was back in the days of Jesus Christ. There was a huge controversy because the Pharisees were using one calendar and the Essenes were using another calendar. And the Essenes were reading the same Torah and coming to a different conclusion about a lot of things. And the Sadducees, they were just kind of doing their own thing. You know, they had a completely different religious philosophy. And yet we refer to the temple as some sort of religious building. And yet Sadducees would go there. Pharisees would go there. Even the Essenes would go there. Now, the Essenes didn't deal in all the animal sacrifice that the Pharisees were dealing in. But they still went there. And, you know, in Jerusalem, they even had the Essene gate. Now, what was really going on? What was all this controversy? And if it was that controversial back then, why wasn't Christ speaking more about it? He did talk about the Sabbath once. They accused him of doing things on the Sabbath that he shouldn't be doing. Now, the Pharisees would know if Jesus was using a a lunar calendar, you know, the Essene calendar, one of the Essene calendars, because all the Essene calendars were not the same. But if he was using one of those calendars, they would know what day was his Sabbath. Although they might have a different Sabbath. And uh, so that when they saw Jesus' men doing certain things on the Sabbath that they shouldn't be doing, or Jesus was healing on the Sabbath, and according to them he shouldn't be doing it, Jesus points out this story about if your sheep or oxen fall into a pit... On the Sabbath, when you go get it out, when you go get it out. Now, according to many people in their calendar, today is the Sabbath. The day this show is going to air live is the Sabbath. And I'm working. <laughs> I've got hours and hours of broadcast time today on multiple stations and you know, multiple gatherings. And I'm working all day. Uh, I've been up since early this morning uh, going over emails. I get hundreds of emails a day. And then we're we're also working the network and we're working the network of congregations. And, you know, I am just behind the eight ball all the time in time. And then my Sabbath comes if I'm going to use this uh, Saturday Sabbath, seventh day Sabbath, is today. And I'm working all day. Last night we were out in the field well after dark, welding together our swather for the tenth time this year. There's enough welds on there. I don't think if I could pick up all the welding slag that's on that that swather, I I would be a very strong man. (laughs) Because it's welded and welded and welded. But we think we've got it. We really did a repair last night. We went whole hog and changed parts and riveted parts and welded parts and so hopefully it'll work way better when we get going and I should be cutting hay today but instead here I am maybe it'll rain today and it was good I didn't cut hay today (laughs) but if I wasn't cutting it I should be picking it up Uh, but I'm here because my Lord's sheep have fallen into a pit of ignorance 
They are caught in a pit of ignorance. So I'm coming out to awaken you to the ignorance and to the pit that you're in. You know, people talk about, you know, what I do all the time and it's been equated that I'm not going to open the cage. Only Christ can open the cage that you're in. But I'm going to rattle the bars so that you know that you're in a cage. And that's what we talked about in the last show, that you're not free. And you shouldn't be free. You should be under tribute because you have been slothful and you have rejected the ways of God. Even though I know your minister told you were saved because you accepted Jesus, he didn't tell you who Jesus was. Oh, they told you stuff about him, but they they didn't really tell you the the character of Jesus. See, Jesus would never send men to his neighbor's house to force his neighbor to pay for benefits that he wanted. He would never do that. Jesus just wouldn't do that. Jesus would not curse his children or his grandchildren with debt so that he could have benefits. He would rather fast and go hungry. He would rather go without rather than curse you with debt. He was here to set you free. And if your ministers were here to set you free, they would tell you the truth. But many of them don't even know the truth because they're really all about vanity. They're all about believing that they're ministers of God. They want to believe that they're ministers of God. And, you know, I'm not going to fault them. This is a strong delusion. It's been everywhere. Except God elected to show me a few things. I wouldn't know them either. I didn't know them for years. God was sending me evidence, but I didn't put it together until I finally admitted that I couldn't put it together. And then I began to see. But I knew that as soon as I began to see, I had to go and tell others. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm telling others. I wrote five books now. I've actually written about seven, but they're not all finished and published. But I give them out there for free. Just go to our website and read the whole book. Download the whole thing. You don't have to have passwords or anything. You just go do it. Now, I'll admit that the books are not always that easy to find. It's easy to find where you could purchase them, but it's not easy to find their text. But their text is completely on the website in HTML and PDF and all kinds of different forms. And all you have to do is do a search. There's a search, two search engines on every page, and you'll find the books. But why did I do it that way instead of just direct you right to the free PDF? Because we're into seeking you shall find. That's part of the instructions. You have to want to find it. You have to want to read it yourself. You have to want to study. You have to want to look. If you don't, well then, I shouldn't help you. I would be giving pearls to swine, to lazy swine who want to rut around and just fill their bellies, fill their heads. I don't want to do that. I, I shouldn't want to do that. You know, in our part three of this, that word you use, article, we talk about if Romans... 13 meant what your modern ministers are telling you that it means. Then Christians could have been and should have been considered the ideal, perfect citizen of Rome. I mean, Rome should have just just been the cat's meow about Christians. But they instead they persecuted them. Why were they persecuting Christians? Why were they so afraid of Christians? You know, Rome 
was very promiscuous in its attitude towards concern and concerning religion and divinity. You could worship almost any god you wanted. There was absolute freedom of religion in that sense of what you wanted to think. That you could think whatever you wanted. But religion wasn't just about what you think. Religion was how you took care of one another. Religion was about this idea of Corbin taking care of the needy amongst you. That's what religion was. That's what religion was all about. And you were going to need to take care of one another in a way that would help your society remain free. That's what religion was all about. That's what pure religion was all about. In this series, we we point out that faith used to mean what you did. Religion used to mean what you did. Faith had to do with probity, which was about honor and justice. And full faith and credit, that's what faith had to do with. You give full faith and credit to God, then you're free souls under God. And if you don't give full faith and credit to God, but to lesser gods, other gods, those gods many, then you're not in the kingdom of God. You're in their kingdom. They're your rulers. And I show that this was not all that uncommon to understand. It is very different for you today. And so therefore it takes huge amounts of explanation. I keep going over the same thing. There was a lady who was so sure about certain eschological things that she had in her mind because she had heard them when she was growing up or becoming a Christian or what she thinks a Christian is. And she would have these ideas that the Bible said such and such. And I would show her. I would go through it step by step. We spent hours going through it and showing her that the Bible doesn't say that. And we look every quote up and I show her that it doesn't say it there, doesn't say it there, doesn't say it. So where does it say it? And she would finally admit it doesn't say it. And she would finally say, oh, I didn't realize that. It was like a revelation. Because I showed her. And we went through it. And three weeks later, she was saying the same thing again. And I said, wait, we spent hours going over this and you realize it doesn't say that in the Bible. And now you're saying that again. And she would go like, uh, oh yeah. But, you know, a couple of months later, she was saying it again. Old habits are hard to break, especially if you only approach this from an intellectual standpoint. You see that what she kept believing, she wanted to believe. Because it fit into her image of Christ. That all she had to do is accept Christ into her heart as her personal Savior. And then presto bingo, she's saved. And no matter what she does, she's not going to lose that salvation. You know, it's kind of ollie 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 and free. You know, she can't lose. She's She's got the cheat. But it doesn't really work that way. And Christ said it didn't work that way. Paul said it didn't work that way. I know Paul said a lot about all you had to do is believe. But the word believe meant something different. The word faith meant something different to him. And this is what the article goes through in parts one and two. But in part three, we talk about, uh, which hasn't been published yet, we talk about in, and I'm quoting here, in an old Hebrew vocabulary by William Robertson of Edinburgh, Eloah is rendered God, while some, it is said, not without ground, interpret it to signify properly a judge. And this comes from the word Allah, which means to swear. 
because it belongs to a judge by his office to bind others by oaths. And hence the name is attributed to God as the greatest and most glorious judge of all the world. So the word originally wasn't God of heaven. It was a judge, a ruler, someone who was bound by an oath or binds people by an oath. Elohim judgeth among the Elohim, gods and judges, who are called gods. And we're looking at Psalms 82. Judges because they represent God upon the earth as his deputed or disputed minister and officer among them. So, what this is why there were these gods many. These are the guys that you could make covenants with. These are the guys that you could make agreements with and bow down and serve. Is these men that would bind you by oaths. And this was understood in the Hebrew vocabulary. And then later on we see it, as I said in the last show, pointing out that the word theos meant magistrates and judges. And the word theos is what we translate into gods or God. So your choice in life and the way in which you live life is going to determine who is your God. You can tell me that God in heaven is your God, but if you're praying to the gods of the earth for your bread and for justice and for protection, then those are really your gods, and your praying is just vain babbling. You see, there's a real serious problem here with this uh, this idea of you don't have strange gods before you. Because that's where you get your... You don't pray to God the Father for your daily bread. You pray to the gods of the earth for your daily bread. Meaning of Elohim and Theos in a book, which is a book that's about translating. It's proper mode of rendering the word God in translating the sacred scriptures into other languages like Chinese. And it was written back in 1848. By uh, Walter Medhurst, uh, Henry Medhurst. And he, he talks about this in great detail. He says that this inferred that the being or beings referred to by this name, this Theos or Elohim, are supposed to possess qualities or attributes which lead their votaries or dependents. Notice how the word votaries and dependents, votaries, Independence to worship and revere them. This is what this word really meant. This is how you know who your God really is. Is by the fact that you're their votaries or dependents. And he says, hence he says, it was applied to kings, magistrates, judges, and others to whom reverence is shown. And which are regarded as representatives of the deity upon the earth. Like the divine right of kings. You've heard of that, the divine right of kings. Well, what does the votaries have to do with the divine right of kings? You know, that's an interesting thought there. You know, the, this whole idea of votaries. What, what is a votary? Now, that, that book was written back in 1848, so we don't see this word votaries all the time today as a common word that we're using. But sometimes the words that are uncommon to us they have a better understanding or mean. A, a, 
A votary is defined, at least in one place, as a person such as a monk or a nun who has made vows of dedication to religious service. Devoted followers, adherent or advocates of someone or something, in that they give as an example a votary of John Keats or somebody who is an admirer of John Keats. Well, is there anybody on this earth that you admire? I mean, who do you elect for your prime minister or president or whatever it is? Are you their votaries? I mean, we call it voting. Where do you think the word vote comes from? It doesn't sound like the word choose. It actually has to do with the word to vow. You are you saying, well, I will follow whoever wins this election... He will be my leader, my commander-in-chief, my prime minister, whatever it is. And I get to roll dice (laughs) with all the rest of you guys to see if I can get the man I like the most in. But if I don't, I will bow down and serve whoever wins. Now, you're a votary because you have vowed. You can't vote unless you vow. Unless you agree. People always say, if you don't vote, you don't have a right to complain. Well, actually, if you do vote, you don't have a right to complain. (laughs) Because you've already vowed that this will be, whoever wins this election will be my master, my leader. He will make laws. He will make treaties. He will require my service. You know, everybody should go read What is required for citizenship in the United States today? If you're going to be a citizen of the United States today, whether you take the actual, you know, physically go, you know, like a newcomer, he has to go and take an actual oath. But uh, the statutes of the United States make it clear that if you're a citizen of the United States, you can be grabbed up, pulled up, and put to work on civilian work projects without pay, according to whatever the gods of your government say. And that's in the law. They don't say gods of your government, but whatever they decide. Because they are the ruling judges. They decide what is good and evil. They decide what you get to keep and what you don't get to keep. They decide. And it should be that way for you. Because you've been slothful in the ways of God. In the ways of God the Father. You haven't been praying to God the Father. You've been praying... Since you were a little kid, you've been praying to the gods of the earth, to the fathers of the earth, for your benefits, for your care, for your protection, for your security. You know, and I know a minister who, uh, he, he doesn't need social security. He could get by without it. And he has put off getting it for a long time because he still works. Uh, but I think he's gotten to the age where, you know, it's almost mandatory. That you get the check, and he's cashing the check, and his kids are encouraging him. His kids are encouraging him to uh, spend the money on vacations, you know, take some time off and go places and everything. And so he started doing it, but he had kind of a twinge of conscience because he didn't really need the money. And they said, "Well, you should. You you paid in all these years. You should take that money back." Well, you know, in the kingdom of God, in Israel, in the early church, they had Corbin. But their Corbin was not like the Corbin of the Pharisees. It was casting your bread upon the water. You just gave money in every week. 
so that there would be funds there to take care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society, the daily ministration. This is how it worked. Those sheep weren't just to be burned up. They were the, they were your offerings to take care of the needy of your society. They were burned up to you, but then they helped feed the needy of their society. And the Levites even had lands in which they could put sheep on and everything and graze them until they were needed. Because, I mean, there wasn't refrigeration, you know. You couldn't, you know, can all that meat. <laughs> so, they would have this land that they could put livestock on and they would, they would tend the sheep and they, you know, just like you watch the treasury because this is a way in which to store value. And that value could even increase if you didn't need it. But there was no widows and orphans going hungry in Israel. And people saw this because of all this sacrifice that if you had real needs, you would be taken care of. Because this is what the Levites were doing. This is what their Corbin, this is what Abraham was doing with his altars too. This is how they took care of the needy of their society. And there was plenty of fat in the land. But all the people owned the milk and honey of their labor. They didn't have to pay in. They needed to pay in to be a part. But if they didn't, they could choose what minister they were going to give the money to. What, what minister they were going to give the sheep to. or the, You know, if they were producers of olive oil, they would give them olive oil. If they were producers, you know, if they were gold miners, they would give them gold. You know, whatever it was that they were producing, they would give him a share. And then he would share with other ministers and they could take care of the widows and orphans in need of their society. And they did this through free will offerings. And it created a different kind of society. When you give somebody the power to rule and to judge and you become their votary and you become their dependents or the Romans would call clients then you are subject because they get to tell you you have to give. You see, now you're not a free people anymore. Now you're a subject people like you were in the days of Egypt. You have to give. And somebody else picks the ministers, you know, in the days of Samuel. When Saul, he says, this is what's going to happen. Your ruler's going to pick who your ministers are going to be. They're going to tell you and the ministers are going to take and take and take and take and take and take. And they're going to take your sons and daughters. And the first fruits of your labor. They're going to do all that. And they tell you. And I'm not even going to hear you when you cry out. When you complain, don't complain to me because I'm not even going to hear you. This is what he says in Samuel. But you you do it anyway. They say, you know, we want to do it anyway. And when I read that, I said, well, that's crazy. They said, he tells you all these bad things. And they said, but we want a king anyway. I says, were they listening? But the reality was, I read it. The first time I read it, I didn't realize we were doing the same thing. Because we were all votaries. You know, that's why I point out everybody in in the system, you know, if you're in England or Canada or United States, it doesn't really matter where you, if you're down in uh, Santo Domingo when you get your Sessula card. You're entering a religious order under a vow of poverty. Now you own nothing. <laughs> they can take everything from you. Usually in in Santa Domingo, they don't usually take much more than 20%. And that's the way it was in Egypt. But in some of these other countries like Holland or France and stuff, I mean, that they'll take 75% of your wages. And they get to decide. You don't. Because you're subject. And, and they are gods. 
you know, go back to that definition of gods. You know, it says uh, attributes which lead their votaries and dependents to worship and revere them. They go on, hence he says that it was applied to kings, magistrates, judges, and others whom reverence is shown and which is regarded as uh, representatives of the deity, the divine right of kings. Those are the guys who rule. It goes on to say, it, meaning Elohim, should seem to be second in dignity only to the name of Jehovah. As uh, the time, as the name imports the essential being of the divinity, uh, so Elohim seems to import the power inherent in the deity, or the manifestation of that power in its relative subjects. See, originally in America, you weren't subjects. But originally in America, there were no public schools, hardly to speak of at all. I mean, there were, most people were educated outside of the public school system, even up until 1900s. After that, now the public school systems became predominant. But before that, it was mostly private education or, or even homeschooling. That was the way it was done. And that's, back in those days, you did have inalienable rights. But when you started taking away the rights of your neighbor... You're, you lost your own rights because you became this covetous society. Next, we'll talk about Jewish grammarians and what they think the word Elohim meant. Because there's lots of people had this opinion. I'm not the only guy, but you don't hear it from hardly anybody but me. <laughs> it's not my fault. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And we're talking about these systems of men that uh, bring us into bondage. And we should be in bondage. So how do you get out of that bondage? Do you become the belligerent claimant in person? Or do you repent, turn around, and begin to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Well, Christ said the latter. That was his advice. To turn around from what you've been doing and do something different. And what you've been doing is coveting your neighbor's goods. So we want to stop that as much as we can. We don't want to see widows starving themselves to death. But realize that you're a sinner and start making preparations to head back. Now, you know, the prodigal son, when he was working for the pig farmer and he was about starving anyway, and all of a sudden he decided to head back. Did he just run out the door the day he decided? Or did he make some preparations? He's going to have to travel. He was in a far country. So he's going to have to travel a long ways back. He's going to need some food to take with him. He's going to need some water. He's going to make sure he's got good solid sandals to make the trip. He might look around for a caravan or something that's heading back that way. And he promised to work for the caravan to help him get there. You know, I'll work for you guys. If you feed me while we cross the desert, you know, kind of thing. We don't have those details in the parable, but we got to figure that if it was a long ways back, he had to make some sort of preparation. He just wasn't stupid, you know. He didn't do the walk the plank thing. You know, you're on board a pirate ship and you see a island off there, or, or maybe you don't even see the island. You just know, if I keep swimming to the east, I'm going to eventually hit U.S., I'm America and I'll be free there. So I'm just going to jump overboard and start swimming. Well, that's not a good idea 
if you're uh, way out in the middle of the Pacific, you might want to wait till you get close enough to dry land where you can actually swim ashore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, like, that's what walking a plank was all about, is that you don't want to serve in this ship, you don't have to. You can leave. And walking the plank normally meant walking down the plank onto the dry dock. But the pirates, being the funny guys that they were, they would just stick out the plank, and they says, well, okay, you can leave the ship. Go ahead. Leave. You don't want to serve on this ship? You don't want to be a pirate with us? You can leave. Except at the end of the plank wasn't a dry dock. <laughs> it was just the ocean, which is not really an alternative. <laughs> that would be duress. You can sign the... The articles and agree to the rules of a pirate ship or walk the plank. Can we get a little closer to dry land before you make me do this? <laughs> well, you know, pirates, the funny guys that they are, uh, that's, that's what walking the plank was all about. Well, today, a lot of people discovering that they're in bondage in the world and that the, the society that they're creating is, is, is decaying. Because it's not fashioned after the ways of God. It's fashioned after the ways of Herod and, and Nimrod and Cain and Lamech and, and uh, all these guys. And it's, it's headed for destruction because those societies always become corrupt and weak. And, and the people become weaker and weaker and they eventually destroy themselves. It's just history repeats itself. But they keep doing it over and over again. People just don't learn from their lessons that they should learn. And so that's the way it's going to go. And you're in bondage. You owe Caesar. You've gotten your benefits. So how do you start heading back? You start doing what Christ said. You start loving your neighbor as yourself. And obviously, your neighbors that are struggling and striving to get back too are the ones you should be helping the most. The ones that are lazy and selfish and don't want to work and etc. You shouldn't be helping them. So this is what you're looking for is to gather with those industrious, diligent, loving, forgiving individuals who want to come together. Now, other people will create all kinds of other criteria. They'll say, oh no, we only want to gather with people that use the word Yahweh. If they don't use the word Yahweh, we don't want to gather with them. Or uh, we only want to gather with people that use a particular calendar. Or we only want to gather with people that wear certain clothes, like they got to wear a prayer shawl. And the fringe has to be so long. Or like some of the Amish do. We only gather together with Amish that have two and a half inch suspenders. And, and wear a hat like this and don't trim the corners of their beards and and they make up all these other rules. When we're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's righteousness that we're supposed to be seeking. And righteousness is going to be including virtues. Like patience and long-suffering and love and forgiveness. and You know, all that boring stuff. That's what we should be seeking. Now, you know, I found it really easy to be patient with people... When there aren't any people around, it's only hard to be patient with them when they're actually nearby and they're in your way or there's, you know, whatever it is that they should be doing or shouldn't be doing and they're doing it and it's 
interfering with you. It's very easy to be patient with people that are nowhere near. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You can love almost anybody at a distance. You start getting them in the same room, they're going to start grating on your nerves. So, in order to find out whether you really do love your neighbor, you got to actually gather together with them. And of course, you know, I'm being sarcastic here if you haven't pecked that up. But this is this is what you have to do is gather together with other people who claim, and that's all we can say is that they claim that they too are seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, some of the things to watch out for is that they're going to be starting to impose all kinds of additional doctrines on top of you and say, oh, well, you got to also do this and you also got to do that and you should only do this this way. And you should only wear this kind of clothes and your suspenders, you know, are too wide or too narrow or whatever it is. You know, and you have to look like us and walk like us and talk like us. And that doesn't have anything to do with it. What you have to do is be like Christ. You know, and Christ was holding up examples like the Good Samaritan, which is, you know, like saying the Good Islamicist or uh, or the Good New Ager or the Good... Uh, the good Buddhist, you know, and he says, you Christians, when you needed help, you went to men who exercised authority one over the other. But the Buddhist, he actually helped take care of the needy without looking to the government, you know, or the New Ager or whatever it is. These are all labels that people use. That's not going to tell you anything because we know that Christ says, you know, Christ goes through a big long parable and he, and he comes at it from two different directions where these guys are claiming to be doing things in Christ's name. They're claiming to be Christians. They claim to believe in Jesus. And they're doing all kinds of stuff. But he says, get you from me, you workers of iniquity. Because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in jail, you didn't come and visit me. And they said, well, when did we not do these things? And he says, when you didn't do them to the least of my brethren. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here because I'm already starting it back from the other way. Because he goes to these other people and say that you come into the kingdom and they don't even know why. They didn't think they were Christians. They didn't think they believed in Jesus. They didn't think they had any right to come in. That's what it appears from the context of what Jesus is saying. Us? Why us? He says, because you did all those things. You know, you you fed me, you clothed me. So now, does that mean you get in the kingdom by works? No, not necessarily. Because, you know, you can actually feed and clothe people and it be a sin. Yeah? Yeah, you can actually do that. How would that be? How can you feed and clothe people and be a sin? You know, I always love the... Uh, the movie Pygmalion with uh, Wendy Hiller. It's an old, old black and white, very grainy productions, but it was actually directed, uh, or at least screenplayed by uh, George Bernard Shaw, who wrote the original Pygmalion. It's where they get the story, My Fair Lady, etc. But in it, her father shows up, and he wants some money to be paid off, because this is his daughter that this gentleman is teaching 
he's just teaching her linguistics. He's just teaching her how to act and walk and everything so that she, he can pass her, pass her off as a lady. There's no hanky-panky going on here. But the father is a little bit lower life and he wants to receive some amount of it. He wants it. Why shouldn't I get something out of it, he says. And the guy actually offers him more than he's asking. And he says, no, no, no. He says, don't give me that much. It would make me think, start thinking I should be prudent with the money. Just give me this much. It'll, he'll have a big bender. He'll go out and get drunk. He doesn't want too much. He might actually start getting responsible. And it ends up that by the end of the story that some philanthropist hears about this guy who Mr. Higgins thinks is an extremely interesting moral, I don't know, uh, showcase of, of, of some sort of strange uh, moral eschatology. And he writes about him. And so this guy, uh, this rich guy in America, bestows upon him a huge sum of money. And he says, it's just ruined my life, he says. <laughs> he says, now I have to be responsible and I actually even have to marry Eliza's mother and all this kind of stuff. Because he was really rather, he was the undeserving poor. He liked being the undeserving poor and he intended to go on being the undeserving poor. So anyway, you know, you could actually kill an alcoholic by giving him too much money. Somebody who is already lazy and selfish... And you start giving them free money and, and all these other things. You're actually prolonging his selfishness. You're not teaching him to be unselfish. Which is really what he needs. So real charity in his case would be not to give to him. Not to feed him. To, you know, kick him out on his uh, rear end and say, you are capable of working, you go work. Because he's not working. He needs to learn to work. He needs to learn to be diligent. In the kingdom of God, people are diligent. And he is only learning to be lazy by your charity. So see, giving too much, giving without the wisdom of Christ can be a very bad thing. And we need to repent of that. So anyway, I'm just trying to give you a little bit clearer idea of the kingdom. And this is the way churches used to operate. Used to take care of the needy. And if if people were lazy, they didn't they didn't encourage that sloth. But I told you before the break that we would talk about Jewish grammarians. And uh, I'm going to quote again here from a book on languages. The Jewish grammarians conceiving the word Elohim is, is used in scripture for... Men in power and authority, particularly for judges, connect this sense with the root Allah, again, to swear, by, we're not talking, you know, the Muslim language, Allah is their name for God, but we're talking about in the ancient Hebrew grammarians, Allah, the word to swear, by observing that it is the particular office or prerogative of judges and magistrates to administer oaths. This power they make the first principle of judicature and magistrate, that you have to bind the individual's conscience. And of course, when I talked in the, the last show about the courts of Israel, is that you would give some individual the power of judge, Elohim, the power of Elohim, in a particular matter, you don't just say you're, you're Elohim for everything that comes up in advance. No, you, you say, and this is what the world has done. 
But in the days when we had 12-man juries who decided fact and law, which you don't have anymore, and that's another whole subject. But you don't really have that. You can imagine that you do, but you don't have that. And we can explain why you don't have that anymore. And you shouldn't have that because you've been lazy and slothful, etc., etc. But if you want to have that, again, you have to stop being lazy and slothful and start, start taking back your responsibilities. So anyway, in the previous show, I told about how they would pick a judge to judge a particular matter. A dispute over a cow, a dispute over a sheep, a dispute over something. That we're going to give you the power to decide. We both agree. And this is where they bind their conscience. And this is why judges are always trying to get you to take oaths. Because you're going to bind your conscience in this particular matter alone because you want to come to a resolution and your heart's too hard and you, you both can't see each other's point of view and somebody's wrong and you don't admit it, but you don't want to break up society because of that. So you say, we're going to give you the power to decide who owes what in this matter. And you, you, you pick a 12-man jury who decide what in this matter. And then... In Israel, they had a whole system of appeals courts, which is the cities of refuge, and which is always misconstrued when most people translate it. But anyway, back to this thing is this. This is what God is, has the right to decide. Now, you get to decide who is going to judge this case. So, yes, you're choosing a God over this matter alone because you can't find any other way to solve the dispute. But you never give somebody the power to make law for you and to decide everything for you, what you're going to give and what you're not going to give. You should never do that. If you do that, then you are making other men gods over you. And if you allow them to create debt for you, then you have made covenants with them and their gods and you have sinned against God in heaven. Of course, Everybody has done that. All your modern Christians have done it. All your modern Buddhists have done it. All your modern New Agers have done it. All your modern, um, I don't know, name me some more religions. They all do this because the whole world has gone whoring after these other gods. Your whole society would be different if you hadn't have done that. You wouldn't be having all the problems that you're seeing in society today. The economy, the health-wise, you know, the foods that you're producing, the, none of them are kosher. I don't want to make you think that, oh, if your food is kosher, it's going to be healthy. It's not. It has the same, your modern kosher foods have the same contaminants all the others do. Anyway, it goes on in this quote, hence they say Elohim signified judges or magistrates generally and by preeminence God as the first of all judges to whom all other judges are subordinate and from whom they derive their authority. Now, they they derive their authority from God because you gave them that authority because you bowed down and served them. You prayed to them for benefits, gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And when you did that, you became a Nicolaitan. You committed the error of Balaam and you followed in the ways of Esau and Edom. And God hates that when you do that. And the whole world has done that. And all you have to do is repent, turn around, and go back the other way, which means you have to start creating a society that takes care of the needy through faith, hope, and charity. That's what will start to open your eyes so that you know what to wear today 
and what to put on your head, and how to cut your hair, and how to cut your beard, and all those other things, you will be guided by the Holy Spirit to know what to do. And you'll find that God really is putting his emphasis on virtue and righteousness. And the other things will just fall in the line as God guides you. And, you know, there's a lot of mystical, quantum, spiritual realities. Once you start taking these steps, these little steps of gathering together and contributing something, casting your bread upon the water, giving something to the stone minister of your altar, of other ministers... See, home church is really great. Home church is a really good idea. But if those home churches are not connected to their ministers with other home churches through the same process of faith, hope, and charity, then you're not preaching kingdom. You're not preaching the kingdom of God. And you're going to need those other ministers all over the country and in other countries to be a body bound together by love, by charity, by hope, by faith, in righteousness, not in doctrines made by men, not in moons and stars and, and all these other things. Those things are there, but Christ didn't emphasize those. He emphasized righteousness with one another, love for one another. When the Good Samaritan picked up that guy and hauled him to a place and put money down to take care of him and bandaged him, He was sacrificing his time and energy. He wasn't earning a place in heaven. He was still going to be saved by grace. But he was following the way of God. He wasn't anti-God. He wasn't doing it contrary to the ways of God. So that's what you have to do. He was being the prodigal son to come back and serve. You won't be able to serve enough to be worthy of salvation. But you have to at least turn around and head in that direction. The term Elohim appears to be attributed in a lower sense to angels, kings who have greater power than their subjects, which is just about everybody in every country in the world, whether you call them king or president or prime minister. They got more power. They're making laws. Recently in California, everybody was up in arms about that, that the people decided to vote one way, but the government decided to go the other way. So who has more power? Who are your gods? Who is your Elohim? Magistrates who have greater power, it also refers to them, than those who come before them to obtain decisions of their suits and applications of the law. And I'm reading right here out of the book. The princes of men of rank, whether in office or not, who possess power and influence by their wealth. That's Elohim. In the kingdom of God, Who is highest amongst you? The ones who have power to make decisions for you and rule over you and exercise authority one over the other are those who serve. You see, that's what you're looking for is men of service. And then you empower them by free will offerings to go out and find other people that are repenting and turning around so that they gather together. So you're picking them shepherds are not going to be picking shepherds who are going to tell you you have to do it this way, you have to think this way, you have to say these words, you have to do this. They're going to be people that say, love one another. And they're going to be not waiting for you to empower them. They're going to go out and take what they have and give it away. 
to the true needy of society and say, here, take what I have and learn to do righteousness with it. They're not going to be exercising power over you. They're not going to be dictating that you have to believe it the way they see it. They won't even tell you all the time the way they see it. But they will be doers of the word. They will be giving of themselves and their time and their life for the benefit of others so that they will learn to give of themselves, of their time and of their life for the benefit of others so that those will give of their time and of their life for the benefit of others and so on and so forth and so forth. And he who is greatest amongst them, you will know him because he'll be in the toilets scrubbing the floor because he will be the best servant of servants of servants of servants. And I have I have come across over the years so many people who want to be free. And they, they want me to bear witness that they are free. And I won't do it. When I see you want to set other men free, when I see the sacrifice, the fruits of sacrifice in your life, because that is the fruit of Christ. That is the nature of Christ. Then I'm going to say, this is a brother. This is a minister of Christ. Because I see him doing what Christ did. I, I don't see him bringing people into bondage. I see him doing what is necessary to be free souls under God. In the kingdom of God. According to the righteousness of God. So until then, may peace be upon your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.